question for you. How would you answer this question? Who are you? Who are you? It's a question of identity. What is your identity? A lot of people going through identity crisis. Now, notice in that question, I didn't ask you what you do. If you notice, we often talk that way with each other. We, we often don't get asked, who are you? What is your identity? We often talk with each other, well, what do you do? And your answer might be, well, I'm a homemaker. Well, that might be true, but that's not answering the question of your identity, of, of who are you. Or you might say, well, I'm a homeschooler. Yeah, that, that might be true. Great. I, I hope you are. But again, that's not your identity. So who are you? And by the way, your answer to that question depends on how you relate to God. So today's all about relating to God, as you can see on the screen. And, and I have to say, I have, uh, I have, I have um, been reading a lot from the Bible and other sources as well. And, and I've been blessed by the gifts that God has given to the church. And according to Ephesians 4, one of the gifts to the church is men... Who are, who are gifted by the Holy Spirit, and they've been helpful to me. And I had a pastor friend of mine give me a book called With. That's the title of the book, With. Yeah, it obviously wasn't done some by marketing guru because the title is kind of really boring, isn't it? But it was a great book. And so I've, I've, I've adapted some thoughts through there, and, and, and I want to share some things that God's been teaching me. There's various identity, uh, identity views, Okay. And these pictures are actually coming from the book. They might look like my children drawing. Actually, my children draw better than this, but uh, way better than this. But here's here's some identities that you might identify with. So which one do you identify with? Actually, there might be multiple ones here. So one is this idea that I live under God. Do you see yourself predominantly as a sinner? Notice in the picture... The, the person's getting squashed by God. Uh, so the idea is here, you, you view yourself as some despicable being living under the constant threat of God's wrath and punishment. You say, do Christians think that way, or is it only Muslims who think that way? Yeah, unfortunately, there's some Christians who might think this way. And so you think, well, well I have to appease God's will through my strict obedience to moral and ritual commands, and I have a code of conduct I have to follow. Or otherwise, God's going to crush me. Some of you might, might be in that category of identity. I hope not, but you might be. Another one is where you have life over God or above God. You, you view yourself as the manager, where you're an autonomous being who's been given a divine manual for operating your life and this world. And so then, if that is true for you, and that's your identity, you view yourself as a manager, then your fates will ultimately rest upon how well you implement God's principles and instructions through your life. Well, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're the next one there, where you, you're, your whole view on life is life from God. <laughs> what, what are you getting out of God, so to speak, where you become a consumer, a discontent being comprised of unmet desires and longing. And so then, if this identity crisis is you, then your happiness comes through demanding all things and people and even God himself 
to orbit around you and you become the center. Well, maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you're trying to live life for God. Uh, it sounds a little more spiritual, doesn't it? Where you think of yourself as a servant. You're a, you're a worker created to fulfill this great mission that God has given to you. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to be obedient. An obedient servant to God. Maybe you identify with one of those. Maybe your sense of value is linked to what you can accomplish in your, in, and the impact that you bring into this world. By the way, all four of those ways of living your life leaves us trying to control a world that is actually uncontrollable. Uh, one of the deep idols of your, of, uh, of your heart might be control, by the way. So maybe it's not significance. Maybe it's not comfort. Maybe it's you're a control freak. <laughs> uh, you need to be aware that's one of the deep idols of the heart. And so you can't control the uncontrollable. All of those four views of identity leave us with a weak understanding of who we are and who God is. None of those things are going to bring ultimate satisfaction into your life. And so we need to think of the fifth posture of how we can live life. And it's a powerful little word that we often just go right past because all it is is a preposition in your English Bibles. The preposition with. So I want to highlight the word with in your English Bibles And what does that actually mean for you? We're going to talk about life with God. And this is a more difficult concept to understand because it's incredibly rare. It's actually very rare. We we don't often see it modeled, and we may not have experienced this much. Maybe, Maybe some of you maybe have never experienced this. And it actually demands a complete shift of who we think we are, and then, well, that ultimately comes out of who God is. So... Again, it's your theology that's going to drive your life here. So let's think about this, friends, okay? First of all, if you're keeping notes, here's number one. What does this look like? In other words, here's my question. What is life with God like? What is life with God like? What what does this look like? Well, as you see on the screen there, it's rather than being the means of achieving our desires, God is the object of our desire. Do you see the difference? God becomes the object of your desire, not, you know, just him being a vending machine, getting what I want out of him. It's far more than that. So our goal is not to use God. The goal for you should be to know God. Do you remember what Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in Philippians 3? I love that passage. Paul says, You know, I I put aside all those other things, like being a Pharisee and from the tribe of Benjamin and a Hebrew of the Hebrews and all the other stuff where people might, might put their identity. And Paul says, that was rubbish. Rubbish. He calls it rubbish. He says, the most important identity thing for him was that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. See, folks, that's where we need to come to. Their goal is not to use God, but to know God. And knowing Him is so much more than just a head knowledge, by the way. See, there's different words for know in your Bible. right? When we're talking about know, the, the Greek word gnosis has the idea of it's an experiential knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. So we, 
we're trying to seek God's face and not his hand, as some have said. Right? Not just what God hands to you. No, it's, it's a personal, experiential relationship. It's not what we get out of God. It's, it's him that we actually desire. And so uh, I, was, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine. Uh, some of you might know him. Uh, he, 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 was, he was telling me an illustration from his own life. So let, let me share his illustration. He's given me permission to do this. Hopefully this helps you to understand this, okay? He told me that since he was, by the way, uh, if, if the motorcycle illustration doesn't work for you, you can just insert your digger in that picture or your horse in that picture or your car in that picture or whatever works for you, just insert it in that picture, okay? Uh, you know, maybe it's an ATV or I, I don't know. You, you insert your thing in that picture, but uh, bear with me here. So anyway, my pastor friend was telling me, when he, ever since he was 16 years old, he wanted a motorcycle. He was told by his parents he couldn't have it, and so he decided, well, I'm going to get into cycling, and he did that for many years. In fact, this pastor friend of mine made me do the Lake Tahoe Cycle Challenge twice, which is the definition of insanity, right? Where you do the same thing twice and you expect a different outcome? Yeah. Anyway, so cycling is supposedly cheaper and safer alternative. But it's not the same thing, he t so he tells me, as a motorcycle. It, it's actually a lot of work to cycle, right? You, you have to pedal. You can't just sit there, right? And so many Christians are, do the same thing, by the way. And we settle for something that looks very similar and has some, some good points to it, but it's far less than what God actually wants for your life. And so it's a bit like... Riding a bicycle instead of a motorcycle. Some of us settle for the bicycle, even though it's really hard work. And we never get to experience what it's like to ride a motorcycle. Uh, we settle for the hard work. And, and we, we do this sometimes in our Christian lives. We, we settle for all those other identity crises, you know, whatever you find yourself to be in those other four views. And so, uh, for my friend, though, he said that this, this desire grew stronger and stronger in him, and having a motorcycle was something he treasured. It consumed his thoughts. And he, he told me that he remembered there was a specific day in his life. He remembered when the motorcycle club drove by, and he was consumed with this desire to be with those guys riding a motorcycle. And that's actually the first part. What does this look like? It starts here. Treasuring God above all else. You want to relate to God? You have to start here. <laughs> you must treasure God above all else. And Jesus taught this several times, by the way. I hope you're familiar with Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew. I've given you uh, the scripture on the screen there. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said this. You shall agape love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, don't try to break all those things down too much. The point is, it's every part of your being is to agape love the Lord your God. Now, notice what Jesus is doing there. He's not saying, you know, just tack Jesus, just tack God onto the end of your life and he's a competitor in this race to top spot. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus is saying, 
God is the focus of your attention. He, he is the top spot. But if you take the analogy of the motorcycle, the illustration of the motorcycle, or the digger for you, or a tractor, or an ATV, or a horse, or whatever it is, okay? Uh, treasuring whatever that thing is, is that enough? Just treasuring it? Uh, does, that, does that mean you then actually have the object of your affection? No, of course not. What you have to do is then you have to come to the second point. You, ha- you have to actually unite with your affection. It's not enough to treasure that you have to unite with it. And so for my friend, he had to go and buy a motorcycle. He had to make some decisions that would actually put him in contact with a motorcycle. It had to become personal. Right? How, how sad is that when you have great affection for something and you never get to experience it? <laughs> That's sad. And so he had, he had to go and buy one, and he did, by the way. And so he united with his object of affection, and that's the, what, what Scripture is showing for us, by the way, as well. We, uni- we need to unite with God. Let me uh, use an illustration from Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, you can turn there if you want. I, I did put the Scripture on the screen here later on. But in Mark 5, there was a man who's possessed by demons or, or uh, unclean spirits. And this man approaches Jesus on the beach. He's just crossed the lake. And this man had been driven out of his village because he he could not be controlled because he was demon-possessed. Even chains, the Bible says, could not contain him. He screamed uncontrollably. He would cut himself. He would torture himself. He lived in a cemetery. And so Jesus sees this man. He has mercy on him and heals him. Casts out the demons. Sends the demons into the pit. And when word reached the village about what Jesus had done, the the people actually came out of their village to see what Jesus had done. They wanted to see for themselves. Is this true, that what we're hearing? And so with that context in mind, look look what uh, the Bible says here in Mark 5, verse 15. It says, And they came to Jesus. That's the villagers. They they, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Notice that little word, with. You're going to see that. You, you, you probably never noticed it so much in your Bible, but I'm going I'm to highlight the word with today for you. Because my proposition from Scripture today is that God wants you to live your life with Him. God God doesn't want you to live your life under Him or above Him or for Him or or, uh, in Him or that that kind of thing. But no, God wants you to live your life with Him. Now notice there's two interesting responses in Mark 5. Did you notice them? Very different responses. And they're actually very telling in their responses. You notice the townspeople. They saw Jesus' greatness and Jesus' power, and they loved him, didn't they? No, that's not what Scripture says, right? Notice the difference. They saw Jesus' greatness and power, and they were freaking out. <laughs> They're frightened. They're afraid of Jesus. And so what do they do? 
they tell Jesus to leave because they're frightened by Jesus' greatness. But the man whom Jesus had healed, he experienced more than Jesus' greatness. He experienced Jesus' goodness. You see the difference there? See, Jesus and God are both great and good at the same time. They're always those things. So he sees his goodness as well. And the healed man, as a result of that, had a very different vision of Jesus and, a, and as a result, a very different response to Jesus. Notice, he wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to be with Jesus. Why? Because he saw his greatness and his goodness. And so the same pattern, by the way, is true for us today. And so we need to ask this question, well, then how do we unite with God? How do we unite with God? Well, you, first of all, you need to see his greatness and his goodness. He is both of those. Because if all you see is Jesus' power, you're going to be afraid. It's frightening. So that's one of the things we learned from Mark chapter 5. But, but how do we unite with God? Well, first of all, it comes down to this, friends. You must believe the salvation message. You must believe the gospel. Right? What's, what's the gospel? Well, it's summarized for you in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? You need to be saved from your greatest problem. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Right? What's your greatest problem? Your sin. And so it says that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Right? There, there's a summation of the gospel. Right? The first three chapters of Romans say, we're all sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. Right? So the Holy Spirit takes three chapters to prove that the entire world stands guilty under a holy God. And your only hope is faith in Christ's person and work. That's Romans 4 and 5. And so you can only be justified, made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that comes to you by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, friend, my friend, if you have never trusted Christ as Savior, then you cannot be united with God. You, you're having an identity crisis. And you're never going to really be able to answer that question, who am I? So that's where it starts. You have to believe the salvation message. But then, as, then second of all, you must believe the salvation message for the right purpose. For the right purpose. You, you say, well, why did you get saved? If you're a Christian... Why did you get saved? Now, I confess a lot of Christians don't really, of course none of us fully understand Bible doctrine. I mean, did, did you get saved so that you could go to heaven when you die? Did you get saved so you could get fire insurance? Some people do. And by the way, those who feel they could be happy in heaven, even if Christ wasn't there, have missed the entire point of the gospel. I learned that, that truth from John Piper. It's not original with me. You've missed the entire point of salvation if you think you could be happy in heaven without Christ. And so salvation is not a way just to get yourself to heaven and escape the flames. It's a way to get to God himself. You see the difference? Where's your desire? Where's your affection here? And so what is your focus of the benefit of your salvation? Well, Here's, here's some ideas that Maybe some of you are thinking. Uh, so some people think, well, hey, then, then at least I know where I'm going. Right? That's a great benefit of salvation, right? I know where I'm going. Or God takes care of all my problems. 
oh, well, maybe it's uh, then I can have peace and security and, and, and I have some purpose in life. Well, maybe all those things are true for you. But may I suggest there's something bigger and better than those? How about this one? I have Yahweh. Give you, is that your real one? I, I hope it is. I have Yahweh. That's what it means, friends, to actually be united with God. You get a person. Now, for my friend, he wanted his motorcycle really bad, and so he went out and bought one, and then he put it in storage. So let me ask you this. Was he with his motorcycle? No. If you buy your digger, and you have great affection for your digger, and then you put it in storage, and you never sit in it and use it, are you with your digger? How about your horse? You buy a horse, and you leave it in the paddock and never ride it. Are you with your horse? No, of course not. So don't just go and buy one and then store it. You need to experience it. And, and for my friend, he, he, he bought his motorcycle, and then he became one with his bike, he told me. And uh, he said his first ride was a bit scary, by the way. But, but you, you get better as you do with a lot of other things. And, and so experiencing oneness with the motorcycle became the culmination in his experience. See, it wasn't, a knife. it wasn't enough to just have affection and desires or a love for something. It wasn't enough to just unite with it. You need the third part, friends. Here's the third part. Experience God day by day. Experience God day by day. Is this explaining your life with God? Is this how you relate with God? Now, some Christians get saved and then they... And then they just, it's, it's really sad. It's a sad story because they just kind of, they kind of wait to die so that they can have the culmination of their salvation. What a horrible way to live. My friends, eternal life. You can start experiencing eternal life right now. Did you know that God wants us to experience him right now? You don't have to wait till die. Yeah, you, you do. In fact, look what 1 John says. See, 1 John gives you, through the entire book of John, you get all these signs and evidences of genuine conversion to Christ. And you come to the end of 1 John, and look what it says here in chapter 5, verse 20. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why did Jesus come? So that we may know Him. I've underlined that, hopefully it shows up. That we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. By the way, again, the Greek word there is, is this idea. It's not just having a bunch of head knowledge so that you can, you know, win the quiz. No. The, this know him in 1 John 5.20 has this idea of an experiential knowledge. In fact, in Greek, it's a present active verb. It's a present active verb. It's a continuous action on your parts. It's not just knowing about him, but an experiential knowledge of God. That is possible even now because of Jesus. You say, great, but where does this come from? In other words, where does life with God come from? Well, it starts with 
God. And I feel like this is a bit of an introduction to the gospel according to John. We're, we're, we're coming to John in a roundabout way. Okay? So, as we come to look at Jesus through the glasses of John, you need to understand it starts with God, or more specifically, the Trinity. And it's all about relationship. It always has been. In fact, of all the strange ways to start a book, if you were writing a book, would you, would you start writing a book like John does? I mean, John doesn't get into light and fluffy stuff at the beginning. The very first verse, John's just like in the beginning. Wow, I mean, this is some pretty deep theology here, John. Look, right? I mean, can't you give us an interesting story or something to draw us in? I mean, just throw theology in my face and expect me to be drawn into that? Yeah, that's what he's doing. Look what he does. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Logos Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. I've underlined the word with. That little preposition is really important because living life with God starts with God. We can't do it without Him because God has always been in a community. He is the Trinity. Notice, Jesus existed before all things. Jesus didn't start existing 2,000 years ago. He's always been. He's been in this Trinity, this one God who eternally exists in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> they, they know what it means to be with and, and living with each other in this community. And so, friends, if we could peel everything back in the universe and, and look at the core, just peel it all back. What's, what's the core? Well, it's not what some people think. You're, you're not going to find divine will. You're not going to find natural law. You're not going to find some personal desire. You're not going to find the global mission at the core. What you're going to find in the core when you peel it all, all the edges back is relationship. We find God here in John 1. What's he doing? He's already existed for all eternity in this eternal relationship with himself. And no, he was never lonely. He never lacked anything for all eternity past. One of my favorite authors uh, who writes a blog, you want, you want somebody who thinks well on most things, <clears throat> except for baby baptism, is Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung said this in his blog post. I'm quoting on the screen for you here. With a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God did not create in order to be loved, but rather created out of the overflow of the perfect love that had always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who ever live in perfect and mutual relationship and delight. So friends, we have no hope of living with God if, if God himself is not living with himself. And it makes this possible for us through Jesus Christ. And so at the core of the universe, friends, is relationship. Really important. So if that's true, then, should it surprise us that God the Son came and took on human flesh and he humbled himself, as Philippians 2 says, became a man 
and then went to, willingly to the cross. He chose crucifixion as his style of death. He humbled himself in that way. He, he wanted to restore relationship that was lost way back in Genesis 3. And so God sent his son to be with us. So that's where this comes from, friends. But then you might say, okay, this life with God, relating with him in this way, okay, that, that's great. How's it different from those other identity crises? Crises. In other words, how is life with God different? Well, it starts with a different goal. You're going to have a different goal from life under God or above God or for God or in God. Those other four postures actually are seeking to use God to achieve some other goal. See, for, for them, God is seen as the means to the end. But life with God is different. See, the goal is not to use God. The difference is God is the goal. I hope you can see that difference. I've put that on the screen for you. So, In other words, friends, God himself becomes the focus of our desire. See, God is not a vending machine where you just go up and you put in your $2 coin and you press A1 and you get your Snickers bar so you're no longer hangry. Okay? Right? That is not God. We treat him like that some ways, sometimes. So there's a whole different goal here. God should be our goal. Not all the blessings he can give to you. I mean, as a, think, think of it as a parent. Isn't it insulting? It's really hard as a parent when your children treat you that way, right? It hurts. We, we love our children. We want our children to love us back. And then we, we, we do all these nice things for them and, and give them gifts. And then, right, has it ever happened to you, parent? Your child, you, you, you spend a lot of money on your child. You give them a gift. And then, and then they, they play with their toy and they ignore you. Never say thank you. Ouch. Have you ever done that to God? God gives you a gift. You don't say thank you and you ignore him? Yeah, we do that. So there's a different goal here. But there's also, number two, a different trust. There's a different trust with life with God. See, in, in those other four postures, trust is ultimately in my ability to control what scares me through trying to control God, which you, you, you can never do. It's, it's, it's a hopeless cycle. He, by the way, here's the world cycle. I'll put it on the screen for you. Not original with me. The world cycle tends to go like this. So we've got to come up with a danger so that we fear, and then we try to control. And then you just keep going around in this terrible cycle. It's a horrible way to live. And it seems like what's happening in the pandemic throughout our world at the moment, this pandemic is trying to create a danger which causes people to fear, and, and so governments and whoever's behind this can control. That's what happens. And so you need to realize that control is an illusion. <laughs> you can't control your life. And so what do we have to do? Trust in God rather than my ability to control, because... I can't control God. I can't control the events of my life. Governments of the world can't control things like they might think they do. So how does this happen? How does trust in God happen? Well, it starts with surrender. You, you, 
you have to surrender control. <laughs> Rather than trying to overcome our fears by seeking more control, the solution is actually the opposite, friends. We overcome fear by surrendering control. Now, that's a really hard concept to grasp for us, all right? Especially if the deep bottle of your heart is control. <laughs> You're going to suffer here. And so how do you get out of this cycle? Well, it, it's the biblical concept of the principle of replacement, right? If you read the book of Ephesians, you'll see the principle of replacement shows up as you put off and you put on. And whenever you put something off, you must replace that thing, and it has to be of like kind. Or as someone taught me a long time ago, you need to seek the superior pleasure to defeat sin. Superior pleasure is always going to defeat sin. So you surrender control. You get out of that cycle, you begin a new one, and it starts with faith, or, or you might substitute the word faith with belief or trust. See, faith is the opposite of seeking control. And then you, step number two is then you surrender. And surrender is possible when you, when you have something bigger and better and more secure, if you will. You need assurance that you're safe. And then that leads to the third part of the cycle, which is true safety. Not an illusion where you think you're in control, but something that really is safe. Somebody illustrated it this way. Have you ever seen a trapeze artist? You know what a trapeze artist is. Those, those are those strange people that uh, swing on ropes, and, and they're, they're way up in the air, hanging on a bar. And so then, uh, like, like those people in the picture there, they, <clears throat> there's a catcher and then there's a, there's a flyer. <laughs> and so they have to have faith that they're going to be caught. I mean, think about it. If, they don't, if they're not trust, the guy who's flying in midair, if he's not trusting his mate there to catch him, why would he do such crazy things? So he surrenders. He lets go of holding on to a safe place, which is the bar, and he finds safety with his mate who catches him, and in the process, that increases his faith. Now, it's a cr crazy object, and you can probably find a loophole or s some hole in that somewhere, but I hope you get the point. God is the one who is totally safe, totally reliable here. And so the, the step is faith, surrender, true safety. And faith comes when we trust our Heavenly Father desires to be with us and He will not let us fall. He is totally safe, totally trustworthy and reliable. You'll see this idea throughout Scripture, but let, let me give you one. Look at this, 1 John 4.18. Powerful words, 1 John 4.18. It says, there is no fear in what? Love. But perfect love casts out fear. Now, I, don't have, I don't have time to go into the, in the greater context here, but let let me do just say this. Often, often Christians look at this wonderful verse, by the way, and sometimes we interpret it this way. When we have the right kind of love, then we don't need to fear. Is that what it's saying? When we have the right kind of love, we don't need to fear? Well, uh, okay, let's think of context for a moment. If you go up two verses before this, to verse 16, here's what it says. In verse 16 it says, So we have come to know and believe what? That, uh, believe what? The love that God has for us. 
So there's the love that verse 18 is talking about. And, and by the way, notice that we keep coming up with these words again. And so please understand, there's a difference here between knowing about God's love for you and then actually having a, this experiential knowledge that God actually loves you personally. By the way, that, that was a huge eye-opener for me as a, as a young boy. Because I had heard the gospel growing up my whole life. Living in a Christian home, going to a healthy church, I went to a Christian school. So I could have told you the gospel probably at age three. Probably. But I didn't put, you know, I, I wasn't converted until later on. But, but, but how God did this is he opened my eyes to this truth. Oh, yes, I, I, I knew I was a sinner, but yes, okay, God loves me? Me? He, he didn't just love the world, he loves me. That was a life-changing knowledge. It became experiential. So how do we live this then? How do we live life with God? You might be asking. Great question. Let me help you. Well, it starts with this. You need to know who God is. And that's why, that's why others in the past, and I try to say this as well, that all Christians need to become theologians. You need to become a theologian. You need to know who God is, what he's done, he is doing, and he's going to keep doing. Now, friends, did you know the Bible mentions our capacity to know God today? Even though that's an imperfect thing. To know, you can know him fully, not just in the future, which you will, but you can, you can know some things about him today. Never fully, and he's incomprehensible, yes. But look what uh, 1 Corinthians 13 here says. Interesting passage. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. In other words, you're looking in the mirror. It's kind of like the lights are out. Maybe there's some fog on the mirror. But notice, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been know, fully known. So one day, friends, your knowledge of God is going to grow exponentially. <laughs> Your sin nature is going to be removed. You're going to see God face to face. Because notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5, it's the pure in heart who will see God. God's going to make your heart pure so you can actually see Him unhindered. Look forward to that day. And so one author, I don't know who said this, but uh, quotes on the screen, quote, If our vision is enlarged and corrected, if we can see his unrivaled beauty, grasp his unconditional love, perceive his radiant glory, and experience his untainted goodness, then it would become obvious that he is much more than a deity to simply tolerate or a device to employ. So friends, what's our problem? The problem is we just don't know God enough. See, if we knew God enough, oh wow, we'd want to know him more. And we would... This would become our great love and passion. So where do we get this complete picture? Do we get the complete picture like the world's philosophy says, you have to look within yourself? <laughs> no, friends. No, no, no. Don't, don't look within yourself. This is where the incomplete picture is developed. <laughs> it actually comes from a relationship with him. And, and it starts with him making that all possible. 
So it starts, number one, with knowing who God is. And number two, we also need to understand then the difference between communication and communion. Let's use prayer as an illustration. Obviously, uh, Christians should be praying. And by the way, the same truths can apply to Bible reading here. But for many people, prayer becomes just communication with God. Right? I'm using prayer and Bible reading as kind of a way to just bring the hay down to the sheep here. Rubber meets the road, so to speak. And for some of us, this is the way we talk to God. And maybe God might even talk to you. I'm not saying he does that audibly, but, but for me, certainly God is talking to me as I'm meditating upon the Scripture and I'm walking with him just through, through my life. But it, uh, <clears throat> there's more to it than just this. Look at Jesus' words here in Matthew, sorry, not Matthew, John 5, verse 19. Jesus said to them, look, look at Jesus' words carefully. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, let me highlight one thing. We'll get more deeply into this as we go through John. But Jesus demonstrates communion here. Now, there's a constant connection with God. Even when Jesus is not speaking words to his Father. Do you, I hope you can see this. And what is it? Well, think, think, just, okay, think of an earthly relationship with a, with a person in your life whom you love dearly. Can you share your heart with this loved one without speaking to them? I, I hope you say yes to that question. All right? For example... Um, I love my wife, and I can express love to my wife without even saying the words, I love you. And you can do the same with your loved ones. How do you do this? You can do it through a look. Body language speaks, right? You can do it through holding their hand. Hopefully that shows love. You can just be in each other's presence and show love. You can give a gift. Those are just some ways that you can love a loved one without using words. And look what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't have to use words to express love and, and to have this going on. And so this applies even with our relationship with Christ. And one of the great passages in John that Jesus uses to show this communion, not communication, but communion with Christ is John 15, and Jesus uses the illustration of a vine and branches. Look what he says here, John 15, 5. He's, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, friends, as far as I know, vines and branches are not using verbal words to communicate. But there's a communion, a vital communion here. That's what Jesus is talking about. What, so what does it mean to abide in Christ? Sorry, again, I don't know who, the author, but I quote. To abide in him means the continued exercise of faith in him, which realizes constantly that Christ is all, that depends on him for everything, 
and knows its utter helplessness apart from him. And as a result of such dependence, the believer clings close to him and lives the life of close and intimate communion with him. I hope that helps. Some Christians think their prayer life, their Bible reading, you know, th- this is what it's all about. It's me talking with God, God talking with me, and through communication. And so communication is talking, it's a face-to-face sort of an idea. But communion is much more. Communion means there's a connection, like a vine and a branch, (laughs) a vital connection. Because the branch can't bear fruit unless it's connected to the vine. It, It gets all its nutrients from that vine, otherwise it's dead. There's no life whatsoever. And so the idea of a communion, then, is there's a heart-to-heart connection. See, we've been looking at Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. See, that's great to know that. But then, what does that mean when I'm abiding and connected in communion with Christ's heart? And so what we're seeing here is a growth process in John 15, then. We don't want to be satisfied with just the face-to-face. We want to move beyond that here now, relating to God as you relate with God your whole life with God, it becomes a heart-to-heart thing. And so when prayer or your Bible reading is a part of communion rather than communication, it's no longer uh, just a Christian duty or a spiritual discipline, but then it becomes your joy. Do you see the difference? Is it your joy or is it the duty? I'm ticking the box. Here I go. I'm jumping on the performance treadmill again today. Woo! I prayed. I read my Bible. Great. Let me move on to the things I really love in life. You see the difference? I hope you do. So when we're in communion, God is our treasure. He, we're treasuring Him. Well, moving on to point three. Point three is that then you need to accept God's unconditional love for you. I mean, do you really believe this? Now, there's a lot of verses we could talk about, okay? I'm trying to make this quick, all right? So let me give you a few few to think about, right? You all know John 3.16, I hope. God so loved the world. How did he evidence that? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I hope you believe that. Romans 5.8 says, okay, well, God actually demonstrates his love for you. How How do you know that? Romans 5.8 says he demonstrates it. How? While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. (laughs) That's an amazing demonstration of love. And so if that's a reality for you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 10 says, then you'll be saved. But what about sanctification? Where you're being set apart from your sin unto God. Think about these statements. Some people think these statements are actually in the Bible. Here's one. That God is angry with the imperfect Christian all the time. Chapter and verse? Uh, As far as I know, that's not in the Bible. Here's another one. That God accepts you based on the consistency of your behavior. Again, chapter and verse. I can't find one. Here's another one that some people think is in the Bible. That God is not interested in me now that I'm saved. Really? As far as I know, those aren't in God's Word, but sometimes we live that way. 
right? Don't let your feelings drive you. Truth should be driving you. And so those aren't in God's word. Well, you might fall into one of those postures, those identity crises that we've talked about. So let me give you some truth that should be driving you. Right? Romans 8 talks about God's unconditional love. Nothing can stop this. Romans 8, verse 38 says, For I am sure. Now there's confidence. There's assurance. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, lest you somehow try to find the loophole here. The Holy Spirit says you can't find a loophole out of this one. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we know that verse, I hope. But maybe that verse is a little academic for you. Maybe it's, you know, it's one in one ear, out the other. Well, listen to this one. This is more of a heart-to-heart, God speaking heart-to-heart here. In Zephaniah 3.17, I love this. It says that Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you. How? By His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Wow. Can you imagine God singing for you? What do you think, God being your cheerleader, He's your greatest cheerleader, what do you think that looks and sounds like? Love to hear that. So friends, God's love for you is just not academic. It's emotional. God has emotions. (laughs) You're made in his image, right? And so when we think of the prodigal son story, again, I'm not going to re-preach that whole sermon, but but one of the things I love in, in Luke 15 is the father's response to the younger brother. Do you relate to the younger brother or the older son more? Which which one do you relate to? Well, the father's response to the younger brother is amazing because look at this. Well, you'll see a picture on the screen there. Because it says that the father arose and he came and while his son was a long way off, the Bible says the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then the father said to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is, and is found, and they began to celebrate. Kind of like what Zephaniah 3.17 was talking about. God exults over the prodigal son. He sings loudly. Well, the father's response to the older brother was interesting as well, was it not? In Luke 15, 28, it says that he was angry. That older brother was angry. And he refused to go in. He's throwing a pity party. He's having a bad attitude. And so his father comes out. He goes after his older son and entreats him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now, that's an interesting word in your Bible, the word entreat. Because entreat means the father here is pleading with his older son He's inviting him and encouraging him. He's consoling him, even though he doesn't deserve it. Now, notice, both brothers had a weak view of their 
relationship with their father. By the way, the main character in the story, of course, is the father. Even though we typically call it the parable of the prodigal son, it should be called the parable of the father, probably. But both brothers had a weak view of their relationship with their father. They didn't really know him as they should. But yet, despite that, the father moved past their weaknesses, and he calls them into relationship with himself. Why is he doing this? How is he doing this? Why? Well, it's because of love. He loved them. He loved them. Love is a powerful thing, probably greater than any of us know. And so you need to understand something. This depth of understanding comes from silence and solitude with God. You have to be still and know God. If you just get stuck in the rut of life and your life becomes busy and noisy, the noise in your life, you, you end up with a noisy soul and you can't, you, you're no longer in this like relationship with God. God's no longer your great treasure. Sometimes you can discover something, hopefully, that God delights in us too. God delights in us too, just like the Father's delighting here in His Son's. And so his joy is not found in using or controlling us as instruments of his will, but rather as the objects of his life. Friends, do you you know that God enjoys you? Do you really believe God enjoys you? So I want to wrap this up. Hopefully you're not having an identity crisis. Hopefully you can see yourselves as the scriptures here show us. Let Let me just give you a few quick scriptures I want you to see yourself this way. Because some of you self, some of you predominantly see yourself as sinners. Some of you predominantly see yourself as a manager or a servant or something else. But friends, only life with God is going to give you a true identity. Do you see yourself as God's beloved? Are you his beloved? Well, if you're a Christian, you are, but do you see yourself that way? Do you actually believe this? Here's some scriptures that prove this, okay? Who are you? Ephesians 5.1 Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Colossians 3.12 Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by God. Or by the Lord. Jude chapter 1. Sorry, there's no chapters in Jude. Jude verse 1. <laughs> Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So friends, you are beloved. And because this is your identity, that he wants to be with us. The question is, do you want to be with Him? Do you want to be with Him? In other words, He wants to. He wants us to be with Him. By the way, that's not just Sunday mornings. That is in every moment of your life. That is every activity of your life, every decision you make, every desire you have, every joy you experience, every trial you go through. It means everything. Life with God. You live it with God. Notice the 
trinity surrounding the stick figure. And so this is the way it's been in the Bible the whole way through. All the way at the beginning of Genesis, straight through the end of your Bible, God's focus and desire has been to be with his people. He walked with Adam in the garden. He was with that real man and real woman. He sought to rule over his creation with them. And the pinnacle of the story in Revelation, friends, actually celebrates the reunion of God and humanity. It's going to happen again. Look what God himself says in Revelation 21, verse 3. Here's the end of your Bible. It says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is... Notice, it's not under God. It doesn't say under God. It doesn't say for God. I'm not living my life for God. I'm not living above God. Notice it is God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And all of God's people should put their hands up in the air and shout, Hallelujah! The pure in heart will see God. He's going to be there in this perfect relationship. We just hit the the R word again. So friends, here's what I'm proposing from Scripture. God wants you to live life with Him. Not above Him. Not under Him. Not for Him. Not from Him. God wants you to live your life with Him. Totally different worldview there. May God enable us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for that little word in our Bibles. You've revealed to us the word with. We're thankful that you're all about relationship, and you, you, you want a relationship with us, and you made that possible through your Son, Jesus Christ, who became like, like us, took on human flesh. And now he has these two natures in the one person forever, and, and we're thankful that he is now at your right hand, He's up there in heaven. He's going to return. We, we look forward to that as well. And, and, and you want to dwell with us. And we are your people. And, and we can have this glorious communion, and not just an affection and love for you, but we can unite with you through Christ and experience you. May we have all of that. Give us all of that. Know what that's like. and Live that out. By your grace, in Jesus' name we pray.